Welcome back. We hope you've been behaving yourself. This is Mary Lewis. And this is Jackie Noto. Welcome to Behave Yourself, a podcast on BA without the BS. Mary, what's your beverageino for the week? From flat soda to frappe, how's your week been going? Thank you for asking. My week has been all sorts of wild, and I feel like that's how this drink is. <clears throat> it's not hot chocolate. It's not chai tea. It's both. It is a hot chocolate chai tea latte, iced or hot. I prefer hot. Did not know this existed. My sweet husband picked it up for me, and I made it. And it is, in fact, quite delicious. That sounds like a lot in one cup. But if it works for you, that's all that matters. Some days it does. What is your beverageino? Um, for my beverageino this week, I'm also going down a tea route. I'm choosing Moroccan mint tea. Oh. So I'm not a huge tea drinker, but when I spend some time in Morocco with lovely people in Chefchouan and Tetuan, uh, they had this Moroccan mint tea and it's warm and it's just it's delicious. And I think that's a good symbol of how my week is going. I'm trying some new things. Change can be positive. So I'm choosing Moroccan mint tea because that was a change for me. I'm not normally a tea person. I'm not normally a warm beverage person. And Moroccan mint tea is both. So that's going to be my beverage of the week because I'm doing some new activities, new behaviors, and change is positive. Change is positive. Pivoting to the positive. Absolutely. I'm not a big tea drinker myself, but I will spill it anytime, anytime. Jackie, what is your recommendation of the week for anyone who might be listening to us on this fine whatever day you're listening? I have a larger recommendation this week. I'm ready. It's going to be a book. So uh, earlier this year, I started training with a friend of mine. Unfortunately, I had to stop the fitness training because I wasn't in a place in my life where I could be maintaining those different expectations. But I do want to give her a plug here because she was absolutely amazing. So if anyone's interested, her at on Instagram is at underscore S as in South T as in Thomas training. And she also has a podcast at Wellish. And this is Sarah Rittendale. She's someone that I've known for a good chunk of my life here. I was her cheerleading coach, actually, when we were younger. When I was in high school, I would coach her in cheerleading when she was a little bit younger. And now she has this whole fitness regime program that anyone can do from wherever they are. And this is not like an official sponsor, an official link or anything like that. But she's actually the person who sent me the book I'm going to recommend. So the book I'm recommending this week is The Four Agreements, a Toltec Wisdom book. And it's by Don Miguel Ruiz. And it's just a practical guide to personal freedom. And it includes four different agreements. And a lot of the information from this was taken from the Toltec tribes that used to exist and was passed down from family to family generationally. So this is information that uh, to me, is always interesting when some parts of history aren't easily accessible and then families decide to put out that information. So I read this book this past week, and it just really helped me to have a different way of viewing the world and how I interact with that world. So that's my recommendation for this week. Once again, The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. 
And I just really found it beneficial, not only for these life skills, but to learn more about the Toltec population and some of their core beliefs and wisdom that they've passed on throughout their generations of family. So it was a really cool read. That sounds really cool. I love being able to read about history and have these huge cultural insights like, wow, these people knew what they were talking about a long time ago. If I had only picked up this book earlier, I would have gained these insights. And it's one of those things that I think about a lot in terms of history is that it's very whitewashed. So seeing some of the wisdom that's come from other communities, other populations is always beneficial. When we look back at things like the ancient pyramids and different ancient cities that are being found and they have far more advanced technologies or systems than we were expecting, it seems like there's a big shock in the community when in reality, it shouldn't be that surprising to us that populations that were not white were able to have these huge advancements societally. So I always find benefit in not only figuring out history on what they did, what they found to be important and how they operated. Yeah. I think it's really beneficial to learn more about a community or a population or history about different communities that perhaps weren't at the forefront of history in the way that it's been written. Thank you for sharing, Jackie. Oh, of course. I always love hearing about new books, new literature. So if anyone out there who's listening has any recommendations, please let us know on our Instagram at BehaveYourselfPod. Mary, what's your new activity of the week? What's going on? This week, I have a personal and professional tip for all of our people pleasers that may be listening. I am one of them. I'm a recovering people pleaser. Of course, we're not promoting people pleasing, but there's this TikToker um, that I love. Her handle is because now you can do the fancy like username now. So it's like it appears different. It appears when you watch her videos as Amy dash hack your HR. And she was talking about how if somebody personal or professional in work or outside of work is asking for you to do something and you either literally can't or maybe don't want to have something else going on or you don't want to explain to your boss that you have, you know, a gyno appointment that you've been waiting three months to make and if you don't get it then you're going to have to rebook, blah, 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 blah. It is totally acceptable to just say, thanks so much, I'm booked. And I was like, I was mind blown by that response because yeah there are definitely ways you can say that where it might come off a little like snarky but if just using genuine vocal tones I think it's totally okay I look at me I'm people pleasing no it's fine to say thanks so much I'm actually booked you don't have to explain it is not your responsibility to tell other people what you're doing or to justify why you can't do it you're thankful that they offered you're booked That's it. And I haven't done this yet, but I'm really, really trying to hold myself accountable. And if this comes up in the future to literally just say, thanks so much, I'm booked. So that's my advice. I'm also saying it out loud. So I'm holding myself accountable on the pod. They do correspondence. I love it. Yeah. It's so as someone with people pleasing tendencies myself, it's very difficult to not give justification as to why you can't do something. Mm -hmm. But in reality, no is no. No is a full sentence. Absolutely. And with that say do correspondence, I do want to let our listeners know that from our previous episodes, I have in fact purchased those blue light glasses. So I am trying to, yeah, I am trying to maintain that say do correspondence. I got two different pairs here and I'm looking forward to starting to use them. Incredible. Also, I've seen them. I know you guys can't see them, but they are 
amazing there's also science behind them we might get into it later maybe future episodes but um definitely the best pair of blue light glasses i've seen and heard of hoot hoot so mayor what topic are we spilling tea on today today we are spilling the hot hot tea on audience behavior we've been talking a lot in previous episodes about conference behavior and attending as a conference attendee and now we're going to be focusing on being an audience member and sharing some of our tips and tricks and hacks or just hot takes Mm -hmm. let's get into talking about slides and presentation slides and how we interact with presenters while we are an audience member yes nighttime etiquette to daytime etiquette All right. So in terms of taking pictures of slides, we have, you're going to see someone who takes a picture of every slide. That's not my recommendation. It can be a little distracting. However, there are, and there, there are, if you want, (laughs) rather than taking a picture of every single slide, if you happen to be an audience member and the presenter is presenting on something that you want every single one of their slides, typically they will provide an email at the end of their presentation or an email in the program book. And you can send them a quick email and say, hey, I loved your presentation. Would you mind sending me the slides? And they will most certainly do that because they want to be able to disseminate their research. So rather than taking a picture of every slide, that's a great alternative. We also want to give some realistic examples because I do take pictures of certain slides. I just don't take a picture of every single slide. Something that I've taken a picture of is specifically a search process that I did not know existed, which is called Prisma. It has a flowchart and a checklist that has been cited um, with within research within our field, but also outside of our field as kind of like the highest level of accuracy in terms of like the most formal way to conduct a search when you're writing a literature review. And I just completed writing a literature review. And when I was at the conference, I was in in the depths, in the trenches of writing that. And I didn't even know it existed. So I took a quick picture so I could look it up on my own. And then I was able to find the resources that I need. Yeah, that's one great example. Another one I've done on a similar line to that is I take pictures of the references slide. If it's something that I want more information on, if it's something that's newer to me in terms of my competency of that scope within the field, that reference slide at the end of the presentation is going to have a lot of good information that I can go ahead and read those articles following the talk. Sometimes on this note as well, I'll take pictures of the literature review. If I'm interested in this topic, I want to learn more about it. It can be helpful for me to just have those slides of some of that background information that led them to the point. Honestly, I've even taken pictures of graphs. If this is a really new piece within the field, I haven't seen articles on this before, and I want to be able to talk about this with my lab mates or some of my peers, having that picture taken of a graph is super helpful to display the effectiveness of that intervention. But just like Mary said, I'm, I'm not someone that takes pictures of every single slide. And if I do feel I'm getting to that point, I'm going to go ahead and ask for the email of the person presenting instead. And that, as Mary said, could be in the brochure, could be on the slides, or it could be nowhere. And it's totally normal 
after a presentation, if you're interested in those slides, to walk up to the presenter and ask them for their email for those slides. This yes. being said, not every presenter likes to share their slides. Yes. Not every presenter likes when photos are being taken of their slides. Ooh, even better point. So at the start of their presentation, if you hear them make some sort of statement, please don't take pictures of my slides, you got to make sure that you follow through on that. And this, once again, sounds like something that would be common sense, but I've seen it before in presentations where the presenter asks that no one take pictures of the slide. And then you see people taking pictures of the slides. So, you know, yes. just have that respect. If someone asks that you don't engage in a behavior, don't go out of your way to do it. Instead of saying, don't take pictures of my slides, people will say, I, I would be happy to send you my slides via PDF at the end of the presentation. I have my email listed. Usually that's indicating that if they're telling you that they're going to send you, that they'd be happy to share the information, that usually implies that you don't necessarily need or they don't necessarily want you taking pictures or recording them as they're presenting. Ooh, recording as presenting. Mm -hmm. That's a huge one. In my, in my professional opinion, unless someone explicitly states you can record this, do not record a whole presentation. Voice memo too, that no voice memo. Normally, if a recording is going to happen, that's going to be something that's being done by the conference itself. Unless the presenter says, feel free to record this, I would under no circumstances assume that I could take audio or video recording of the session itself. Great point. In terms of questions, so emailing about slides, in terms of questions that we would email versus questions that we would ask to the presenter, sometimes if there's a discussant, they will discuss and they will open the floor to questions or mm -hmm. sometimes they run out of time. But a lot of times there is time where the discussant or the chair will open the floor up to questions. Why don't we talk about some of the questions that might be more acceptable to ask and then maybe some other questions if we really do have those questions might be more appropriate to email yeah of course I think before we dive into this one important part to keep in mind when it comes to these conferences is often unless you're in you know the ballroom talk where there's 500 seats available most of the talks that you're going to go to at a conference are going to be graduate level presenters. Mm -hmm. So often you're going to be seeing students present information. So I think that's something that's really beneficial to keep in mind when we're coming up with questions, because for some of these individuals, it might be their first time presenting. Yes. So having a little bit of grace, I think is point number one here. Yes. Yes. And also, and I'm, this is a learning experience. I will do this in the future. I actually, I'm, I'm going to do it for ABAI. I just thought of it. I have had, un unfortunately, a really negative experience with somebody um, discussing my presentation in front of a group of people, and I wasn't expecting them to provide such critical feedback. It was nothing nasty. It was all very, very professional. But as a student, I just had no idea that my research had those limitations or that there was miscommunication with some of my definitions and my data. And so in the future... 
asking whoever's going to discuss if you are in a symposia or if you're presenting um, as a student, asking your advisor, hey, is there anything in this presentation that, you know, think might serve as a limitation that I can talk about or just communicating if it's somebody discussing or talking about your paper your or your presentation that you've never met? Hey, these are my slides. Please let me know if there's anything that's confusing or that doesn't make sense or that you think is a major limitation because I would love to expand upon it or provide more context if it's confusing because even if they are a practicing behavior analyst, if it's not 100% their scope, they might need more context. They don't have anything else to go on besides your slides. So I think that's another thing. Um, that's a lesson that I learned the hard way um, that I will be spinning into a positive, not toxic positivity, but pivoting it in, into a positive because as a student, you're just, you're practicing to um, dis disseminate your research for sure, but also to get experience practicing being a presenter and not necessarily Receiving critical feedback. Yeah. And not necessarily sharing the most incredible data and the most incredible findings. I love that phrase you just used, pivot into positivity. I'm going to keep that one in mind. So four questions that I would ask to student presenters. I normally gear it towards more information I'm interested in. And this being said, this is not just within student presenters. This is all across the gauge of different levels of experience here. Sometimes your presenter is not going to know the answer to your question. And that's fine. But I typically like to have the questions that I ask to a presenter lean on the side of, here is some more information I would like to know. So this could be, how do you think that this would be researched further within the realm of behavior analysis? Mm -hmm. What obstacles are present in the systems that are making this difficult to be taking place? What limitations do you think need to be combated for this to be effective? So we can ask questions about the content, but I think the most beneficial questions, in my opinion, when it comes to these presenters are what can come next? Mm -hmm. Excellent question. A question I got that I really liked, I thought it was very appropriate. I also thought it was really kind because it was one of those very prominent people in the fields who I admire so much. They asked a question about my research. I was talking about applied projects, specifically within the OBM realm, specifically, specifically within an autism clinic and specifically looking at, how many times can I say specifically? Looking at... <laughs> RBT staff working with individuals with autism and all of these different projects that we've done. And they asked something to the effect of what is the feasibility or what are the next steps? So similar to what you were saying about future research for integrating these type of projects and interventions long-term and in maintenance. And is it up to the performer to be responsible for making these behavior changes. So that kind of led me into answering, you know, the organization 100% needs to change, adapt, and support these new interventions if they're being implemented in order for staff to be successful. And so this is someone who is, you know, extremely intelligent. I think they were more giving me a question to expand upon. I don't think they were actually 
asking to know the answer, but it was just really kind and very supportive because it allowed me to share that I don't think all of the responsibility should be at the performer level. The organization also needs to support that and leadership needs to support that. So that's an example of a question that I got from the audience that I thought was excellent. Now, a little more of a spiky topic here. What are some questions that should not be asked following a presentation? Um, I've never, I've never luckily witnessed anyone say anything, just critical feedback in general, like generally don't, that's, I would say the blanket term. I think a important thing to keep in mind, once again, I said it earlier, give some grace to the presenters. What is the function behind your question asking behavior? When I've So thankfully, this has never happened to me before, but as someone who does some talks and training on responding to active shooter scenarios, I have seen some talks on that topic where audience members uh, start asking questions that are offensive to different religious populations, different ethnicities, and it's honestly, the question lines have been totally unacceptable in certain uh, active violence response training symposia I've been to. And on, so first things first, don't be racist, homophobic, xenophobic. uh, When you are asking your questions, once again, something that probably feels like common sense, but then part two, back to that function of the behavior. So Mary and I both went to a talk maybe a year and a half ago now And I'm not going to talk about the content of the talk because I'm not trying to give this person any more negative attention than what they already received, but the kind of vocal verbal behavior that they were including wasn't necessarily accurate. And you could see multiple people in the audience getting that same vibe, for a lack of a better term here. And a lot of us weren't really pleased with this information. You could tell that this was a first-year master's student who was giving the talk, and following the talk, an audience member stood up and pretty much essentially said that this individual did not know what they were talking about, was not in the correct scope, and that they're giving information that's harmful to different populations. Yeah. They're function might have had two different purposes, right? To one, inform the rest of the audience that that vocal verbal behavior was not aligning with facts or truth. But the second part is I think the part that a lot of us had issues with, because while we agreed with the person asking the question, we did not agree in the way in which they asked it. It seemed like the second function, exactly. It seemed like the second function of their behavior was trying to embarrass or diminish the presenter. And I think that would be my main thing when it comes to questions to not ask. It's not necessarily the question that you're asking. It's how you're treating another human being. When the question was asked, it was filled with disrespect, patronizing behaviors. And I think that's the bigger part. Yeah. And I think maybe an unspoken rule in terms of the questions and that question time is to ask questions that are more supporting the current research and future next steps and less 
on what you might disagree on or what might you, or like any critical feedback that you have. I'm not saying that any critical feedback or changes or updates or like opposing arguments to share is wrong or bad. You, sh- you can hundred percent do that. But yeah. I think that would be better going back to function that would add more value to the presenter who is primarily doing this research in a one-on-one conversation after the talk or via email. Because if the true function is for you to share like, hey, I saw your references. There's actually a new article that just came out last year. I didn't see you had it on there. I thought it might be helpful. That's not necessarily something that I would say is would add the most value to say in that question time in front of everyone, you know, keep it more positive, keep it more supportive. If you have anything negative or critical to say, I'm not saying don't say it, just maybe do it privately in a way that is showing that you are, you are being a compassionate audience member and you're not trying to tear anyone down because yeah, sometimes the graphs might not look great. Sometimes there might be limitations that they don't talk about. If, especially if they're a first year master's student, it might not be the most perfect study. It also might not be their own study. So keeping Mm -hmm. the questions, you know, light and supportive and adding to value in the way that it would benefit the entire audience, I think is the best way to go. And a one that benefit to the entire audience. There's nothing more irritating than when someone keeps asking personal questions. Like oh. I have this problem with my client. What yeah. are your thoughts on blah, 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 blah. I'm like, yep. okay, that should have been an email. Mm-hmm. But with the critical part, I'd argue you can still have critiques of people in a public sector. It doesn't necessarily need to be private, but let's think about those social skills. Mm-hmm. How do we interact with people? So let's say Mary's giving a presentation on coffee lipstick hustle, and she states the claim that all lip products stain coffee mugs. I have seen research that disagrees with that. I, when phrasing the question, am not going to say, Mary, you clearly do not know what you're talking about. All lipsticks don't stain mugs. That's blatantly false, and you're spreading false information. I would phrase it in a manner of, Mary, I noticed in your presentation today, you had said that all lipsticks stain coffee mugs, but I've seen some research that says otherwise. Do you have any ideas on ways that we can further the discrepancy between lipstick stains and ones that don't so that we can have a clear answer for the field? We can still put in that uh, difference in our opinions without it being an attack on the presenter. Yes. Speaking of supporting presenters. Yeah. Let's go into supporting our friends. And also, even if you're not their friend, how to support presenters with our non-verbal, our non-vocal verbal behavior when we are presenting. Absolutely. So when my friends are presenting, I typically like to ask them ahead of time. If they are the type of person who wants their friends there, or if they do not want their friends there, I'm typically a person that does not like to have my friends in the audience when I talk. So that's something that I like to keep as a question for my peers so that I can align with whatever preferences they have on if I'm there or not. That being said, if a friend says that they like to have friends there watching them, I will do everything in my power to be there for that talk. Yeah. And I think just communicating that with friends, I have weird rules and like 
perceptions of friends attending conferences specifically. I don't want Jackie at my presentation because I just think so highly of her. And I think of her as an expert in all of the things that I've done. She also normally gives me so much helpful feedback in terms of my PowerPoint. So like, I don't want her to see me like have an error in my PowerPoint or something like that. Um, and also I probably have talked either talked at length of the projects that I'm going to be presenting on, or she's already seen the presentation. She doesn't need to be there. It would just make me more nervous because the amount of time and effort that she has put into just being a supportive friend and colleague for every single one of my presentations, I should literally be sending her an invoice because it's just so incredibly generous and kind. So no, I don't necessarily want Jackie to be there. I also don't want my husband to be there because I really value his opinion. He's a BCBA and he usually is able to provide critical feedback for me that is insightful that I may have missed. I don't necessarily want to hear that from him. And I don't want to be thinking about him thinking of those things in my presentation. That being said, I have a few other friends in the field who are my colleagues. And um, we are normally presenting at the same time. We're involved in the same lab. Jackie's involved in the same lab as us anyway, but I don't know why it feels different. It just is. And we will go to each other's and for them sitting in the audience, for some reason, I'm going to look to them, but I don't have the same um, viewpoint of like, they've spent hours and hours helping me craft this perfectly. So like, I want to be looking at them for support because they don't know my research topic they, or they maybe have heard it, but they're also worried and stressed and thinking about their own research topics. And for some reason, I feel like those are the people in the audience that I'm going to be looking for that. And I'm not going to be so worried about what they think. And because they're thinking about their other presentations too. So those are my weird specific rules. Um, and my point is, is that it could be different depending on your colleagues and your friends and just communicate with, the, with that with them, because having specific people there or not having anybody there, if that's your true preference, it really does make the presentation process a lot less stressful for you, depending on your preferences. Yeah. And it totally makes sense that you would want some of those other colleagues there. Mary and I are some of the larger OBM people at the university that we're a part of, whereas some of the other doc students that we're friends with don't have their focus in OBM. They're more focused in ABA. So having individuals who aren't as familiar with the topic are great to have in the audience because you can check for comprehension which I think is the next big point here when it comes to how to be a supportive friend when you're attending someone's talk. Microfacial feedback is so beneficial as a presenter. When you're looking out to the audience and you're not seeing people's heads in their phones, they're looking at you. When you stumble, your friends are sitting there smiling at you, eyebrows raised, nodding their heads as a, you've got this, keep going. You should be trying to break your neck nodding every three seconds if you're a friend and the person presenting has already told you their preferences that they do want you as an audience member and they want to be able to see you sit on the aisle side or sit in the middle depending on where they are going to look and you can ask that beforehand or you can go into the room prior and practice your conversation that usually in the evenings they have the doors unlocked and so you can do that. I would highly recommend that. I always do that. And wherever you generally glance, they sit there and the entire time, it's going to look weird. It's going to feel weird. It doesn't matter. You're not there for the other audience members. You're there for the presenter continually nodding your neck. So every time, nodding your head. So every time they look at you, they're going to feel that sense of support and comfort. 
And I, my friends have done that for me in the past and I've attempted to do that for my friends. And I think it is really supportive and makes me feel so much better presenting. It's huge. It's huge. And as someone who teaches online, uh, I have students have, my students have to do a presentation and we'll talk more about presentation tips and tricks in a future episode of this podcast. But when my students are presenting, I make the requirement that all of their peers have to have their cameras on because presenting to a blank audience is so difficult. So Mm -hmm. having those members of support there that can nod their heads for a little bit of background here. Of course I like support, but I think the reason why I have the preferences that I do have when it comes to my conference talks is my first ever conference presentation was at the same time as an ethics talk at FABA. And I expected that everyone was going to be at this ethics talk. It turned out that uh, quite a few people who were in positions of power did not want to go to this ethics talk. And my talk was at the same time. So when I went up, I was the first person to present and I looked out, there were probably about 15 PhD faculties from different universities sitting in the talk, watching me speak for my first ever presentation. And quite a few of them were from my own university. So at that moment, I was like, this is the most heart racing thing that could be happening to me right now. When I already have imposter syndrome, I already feel like I'm not going to do well. And then I have a bunch of people who know the field very well, sitting there and looking at me and expecting me to be spot on. And that presentation ended up going fine. I got some positive feedback, but I think that was what uh, really initiated my behavior pattern of preferring people I don't know to be at those talks. With the topics that I present on, like diversity, equity, inclusion, allyship, activism, active shooter training, um, I've done, I think, two talks now on burnout and self-care habits. But I think a big part too is those behaviors following a talk. So when your friends come and they watch you present, often your friends, other people who will walk right up to you afterwards and tell you how good you're doing. And when I'm doing content like active shooter training, I have people who do not know me who want to be able to talk to me. It gives them the opportunity to walk up to me right after that talk so that they can get my contact information if they have any further questions for me, if they want an elaboration Whereas if I was surrounded by a bubble of my friends, it might be a little more off-putting for someone who wants to engage in that social networking opportunity. I love that we have different preferences and different functions or reasons why we have those preferences. As a final hack or secret to spill, I want to talk about the number, ideal number of talks. So the number of talks that you're expected to go to, that you feel you should go to, whether you're paying with your own money or being funded to do so. And Jackie, do you want to start or do you want me to start? You can go ahead and start. Take it away. All right. So my personal preference or hack that I think allows me to have the best experience at the conference and also makes me feel like I've, I've attended my money's worth is approximately three to four talks per day. There are way more than three to four talks that actually go on, but the criteria that I try to follow to have the most successful conference experience is the following. 
Every day, look for three to four talks to go to. Within those talks, attempt to go to one talk that is totally out of my scope. I'm primarily OBM, so out of my scope that talks that I have been to that I would categorize as such would be specifically a feeding talk or a severe behavior intervention talk. Um, so focusing on something that's totally out of my scope, just to expand my horizons and be present with the current literature that is out there to get something new from the conference. And then also attempting to go to, and this can be the same, but attempting to go to a talk that a colleague is interested in that I might not be interested in to show them support, but to also get experience in a topic that might not necessarily be within my scope. I love that. For me, I would say my minimum daily would probably be three. That's my minimum, minimum, my maximum. I've probably done six talks in a day. And a big part of what talks you're choosing to go to is the way that the conference is formatted. So it might be on Friday, there are six talks you're interested in. You want to make it to all six of them. And on Friday, they don't really have many talks on the topics that you're interested in. So I think that is a big uh, fluctuation aspect in terms of how many talks I end up going to. But I do like to do some of the same tricks that Mary was talking about. I like to go to some talks that are not as out of scope as what Mary was suggesting, but adjacent. So Mary and I, as we've stated 18 times today, we are both OBM based. And when it comes to OBM, when it comes to any branches of behavior analysis, I like to loop back to that concept that Skinner noted that behavior analysis has the potential to change the world. So I like to go to talks that are focused on dissemination. Outside of the talks that I typically attend, I like to look at different sectors and different populations that we're applying behavior analysis to. So I've seen ones on environmental conservation and sustainability. That's not a realm that I do research in, but it's adjacent to what I do, and it's going to have that potential to change the world. I've gone to talks on sports, coaching, music, use of music for different populations because it uh, hits at a point in your brain where there's still neuroplasticity going on. So I typically do talks that I'm interested in, talks that my friends are giving to support them. And then I would categorize it as dissemination talks. And primarily those are looking at dissemination into public sectors like environmental sustainability, uh, cultural change, and uh, expanding to slightly older populations within ABA. So I also like going to talks that are on group homes for teens with developmental delays. I think that's super helpful because you also get to see how those systems work, which once again, goes back into OBM. So that would be my recommendation. I would say minimum of three, maximum of six. On this note, uh, if I do have a three day, maybe there's three talks I'm interested in and nothing else is really tickling my fancy. I do self-care. Different people have different forms of self-care, but I had it happen a couple of years ago at a conference. There was a talk I wanted to go to from 9.30 to 10.50. And then I didn't want to go to another one until 1 p.m. So from 11 to 1, I went and I hung out at the pool. And it was great. And at first I got a little bit of judgment from people that I was at a conference and I was spending a whopping two hours at the pool. 
but it helped to refill my cup for the rest of that conference. When you're going to a four day conference, you have to take some time to refill your cup. And for me, I refill in alone periods. I love people. I love friends. If you see me a lot, you'd think I'm an extrovert, but really I'm an introverted extrovert. I engage in people-pleasing activities, which makes me seem like an extrovert, but I get recharged with my alone periods. So going and sitting at the pool by myself for two hours with a book helps me to recharge for all the small talk conversations that I know are coming up. And we always want to promote staying hydrated and filling our cup. And you should a thousand percent also be doing that when you're traveling at a conference, the same level, your cup should be still filled to the highest, even at a conference. Bring yourself a little face mask, Mm, whatever those eye patches. Mm. Oh yeah. Yeah. I have a hot take question for you Yeah. in a scenario that's happened to me. Okay. You look through the program book prior to the conference because you are a planning productive queen. You look in the program before the conference, you pick a conference that you're, you're, you pick a symposia that you're interested in going in. You go to the conference, you go to the symposia, you sit your little booty down and they start presenting in the first five minutes, you realize this either does not apply to what you were looking for at all is not something you're interested in sitting through. There's another competing talk at the very same time, or um, it's just not, this isn't the right fit. And you're realizing that you would rather not sit through the entire symposia based on the first five minutes. There's just a misalignment. What do you do? Yeah. Um, So for me, it depends. I've had it two different ways. Once I've gone to a talk, I thought it was going to be really beneficial. And within the start of the talk, The person was making a lot of inflammatory statements and talking down about people who needed to use uh, medications for their quality of life. They were making a lot of statements that I did not agree with. So in that situation, I made the decision to quietly pack up my things, get up and walk out, just like you would if you were going to the bathroom. If it's not a situation like that, where it's not being offensive to you or to people that you care about, if you're just in the talk and you notice that it's not really aligning with what you'd like, I'd sit there for the 15 minutes. Normally a symposia is four, 12 to 16 minute talks. And by the time you figure this out, you're probably already five minutes into talk one. So I would sit for the remainder of talk one and then leave the room. I I have a very similar opinion in terms of going to a talk and having it just not be the right fit. Specifically, I'm thinking of, um, I attended a talk that was put on by a specific company, and I thought that they would be talking about more organizational values, systems, specific interventions, and they were actually talking more about, and this was my own misinterpretation, they were talking more about um, insurance building and specific systems that only their company uses and how to use those systems. So in terms of like generalization, it just wasn't wasn't matching up with what I thought it was going to be. It was in the afternoon and it was in a huge room. There were, so in me saying the afternoon, you know, people are getting up and getting snacks. People are awake, people are active. It was also a panel of like eight people in a very large space. And I was towards the back. And in that moment, I was like, you know, 
I think I'm just going to go take a nap. I'm going to take a break. And I stood up and I left. Nobody even noticed, heard, or seen that I had gone. And then I think in the opposite situation, if you're, or in another situation, if you're in a talk and it's a little bit smaller or, you know, you, you can hear a pen drop it maybe it's the first presentation and there isn't anything that is really, it's just like not really the fit that you were thinking. I would probably just sit through it and, or just get up discreetly once a new presenter is starting to set up. Yeah. And I want to add in there to me, panels are very different than presenters. I'm much more comfortable with leaving a panel talk because it's more informal. Different people are typically answering questions that are given to them by the chair. It's more of a conversation based. I would feel much more comfortable just getting up and leaving a panel than I would a presenter because it just feels somewhat disrespectful to leave when one person is standing at the front sharing their information. So I agree with you there on the panel being different, but something to keep in mind, looping back to our first episode here, if you do choose to leave, that's fine. Just be respectful, be courteous when you're doing so. Don't be making a bunch of noise when you're collecting your stuff. Don't make it a huge scene when you're walking out. When you shut the door, make sure that you hold on to it so it doesn't close loudly. Just be an appropriate, respectful, courteous audience member if you do choose to leave. Because also, for all they know, you have to go to the bathroom because Mm -hmm. you drank a bunch of coffee. So it really shouldn't be a huge effect as long as when you're leaving, you're being respectful. I completely agree. So I think that pretty much wraps up our conference hacks, tips, and tricks from an audience member's perspective. The last topic that we want to talk about, which we're going to be diving into next week as an audience member or someone attending a conference is the concept of social networking. So we've talked about, you know, how to be in those interactions when you're in the talk, but how do you have that conversation to get the slides. How do you enter a conversation with a group of people? How do you make a connection with someone you value in the field or look up to in the field? So next week, we're going to be diving into some of that information. So not only will you know what to do when you're at the conference, but how to identify those next steps in your career journey. That was an incredible outro. Mary, I do have a final question for you. So Mary, How are you refilling your cup? How are you staying hydrated this week? Thank you for asking. I'm staying hydrated by reaching out to friends and letting them know that I'm prioritizing some type of movement a couple days a week and asking them to join. I did that yesterday, which was really lovely yesterday evening with some friends. So I'm very thankful for that. And getting specifically getting outside. I live in a a location where the weather is really, really nice right now. So being able to get outside after the workday has been filling my cup. And then also a friend gifted me a meditation book for women who do too much, quote unquote. That's the title of the book. I have that book. (gasps) Oh my gosh. Yeah, my undergrad advisor gave me that book. Oh, I love that. It's it's an amazing, it was an amazing gift. It's just one, almost like a little devotional page for every day of the year. And I read it in the morning with my coffee and it just kind of, it fills up, it fills up my cup, honestly, quite a lot. And I, so I've been trying to do that as many days as I can. What about you? Uh, For my refilling of my cup, 
something that I was debating having be my new thing of the week, but decided I would keep it for this section instead is I recently moved to a new apartment and my dog Hercules and I have been, you know, exploring. So we found the walking trail that's nearby the apartment, but then a couple of days ago, we were just off and about and I found like a little creek, like an offshoot of a creek. And you can get in fairly easy. And then when you're in it, it's very serene. You look around, you can't see any buildings. You don't hear the traffic. It feels like you're in the middle of nowhere finding a stream in the woods. So Hercules and I have really been enjoying going and doing that. It's really fun because he was a dog that I took in from the unhoused population, which Mary knows, but sharing with our friends here. Uh, so he didn't really have a lot of experiences before I took him in. So him, you know, digging in the sand in the water and jumping from rock to rock and being efficient at it has been really enjoyable, not only for him, but for me to see him having fun in an entirely new environment. He's doing so much better at rock climbing than I thought he would be. And his vertical is phenomenal. Like, I'm like, okay, we have to get up here. You want to see how I'm in a step? So I step on this one, step on this one, and then step up. And then I'm like, okay, you try. And he just leaps the whole thing to the top. I'm like, wow, hella impressive, my guy. And then the other thing that uh, fills my cup up each week is Mary and I are both podcast listeners. So one of my favorite podcasts is called My Favorite Murder. Maybe I'll manifest it now that at some point they'll have me come tell my hometown story on their podcast in the future. But when I'm out and about in nature with Herc, most of the time when we're at the stream, I'm not having my headphones on. But if we're just doing our little laps around the pond, I like to put on my noise-canceling headphones, throw on that podcast, and refill my cup with Karen Kilgareth and Georgia Hardstark. So those are my hydrations for this week, making my flowers bloom. (laughs) Oh, we love that. And with those highlights done... That wraps up this week's episode. Thanks for tuning in. Remember to make waves, collect data, and as always, behave yourself. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.